It's go time. Big changes in the Canadian Football League as of today, our date of recording, August the 15th. We've got to get to it. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham here on Third Down Gamble. Stunning news coming out of Edmonton where Victor Cui, president of the football club and the board, decide to mutually part ways. We've got a lot to talk about this. First and foremost, was this a right decision to take? My short answer is no, I don't believe it is. Victor Cui came on board after all of the coaching changes were already made. He did not really get a chance to put his stamp on this organization, in my opinion. One thing that Victor did from the beginning was really promote the organization, promote the culture, promote the fans, promote the experience. And we know the Elks have been struggling attendance-wise this year. But you have to look at the on-field product as the biggest issue with getting fans in the seats and not with what Victor Cui has been doing. The club announced that it was not solely based on on on-field production, that there were other factors as well. Unless we're in the boardroom and the locker room, we'll never know the, the true full stories of what this all entailed. But I believe it's a big mistake for the Elks. It's been an interesting past five years for a franchise that was the model that everyone pointed to and said, we've got to be like them, that now they have fallen. An 0-9 record is one thing, but firing the president mid-season is quite another. If you look at the debris field in the last few years, you start with the hiring of, of Chris Presson in August of 2019. Brock Sunderland had predated him in April of 2017. Jamie Elizondo is their hire in February of 2021. He was replacing, of course, Scott Malinovich, who had signed on but then left for the NFL during the 2029 season. All of these people, the three that I named other than Milanovic, were fired on the 22nd of November 2021. Victor Cui is hired on January 25th of 2022. He does not predate the hiring of GM and head coach Chris Jones, who was hired on December 21st of 2021, assistant GM G. Roy Simon on December 28th, 2021, nor any of the coaching staff that was brought on board. In other words, Cui inherited everything. And even in the interview that we had with him, he said he was fine with that. He realized that he was going to have to live with decisions that were taken prior to him. And he was good with that. That is a huge debris field for this board Now, it's not exactly the same composition. Ian Murray was the president before. Tom Richards is now. They are a volunteer board, but they are the ones who are in charge of that organization from the top. They've had a few missteps in the last few years. One of the key questions that was asked, and it was asked repeatedly at the press conference, are you looking inward at yourself in all of this? They have to look inward at this point. Whether they will truly reflect on it or not remains to be seen. But if Victor Cui is not the guy, then who is? That That's my big question. If, if you're so quick to give up on him when you've committed to the 
coaching salaries of all these other components, uh, such as Chris Jones, G. Roy Simon in the assistant GM role, handcuffing Victor Kui, he has been on record throughout the season touting his faith in Chris Jones in that role, saying they weren't going to make any decisions throughout the season. We know Jones has a four-year contract or possibly four one-year contracts. Details are a little bit sketchy on that. We'll see what happens in the offseason. But Victor Kui was committed to seeing this through this season. It is unusual for there to be a shakeup at this position in the middle of a season. It's something that often happens in November, December, January, when you start to reflect on what happened and you look at the direction you want to go. The Edmonton Elks as an organization are in a bit of trouble. It's There's no way to sugarcoat it. The on-field product is struggling. They've shown some signs of improvement over the last couple of weeks, but that hasn't translated into wins yet. Fans are frustrated. Does Victor Kui take the hit for that? Victor Kui, we know, is kind of a macro thinker. He built a company from nothing into a billion-dollar enterprise. He knows how to run a business. Go, was there sort of a macro fight going on where he saw that the team had to go one way and the board maybe did not? That's a, a great point. The governance of a board can really affect how somebody operates in that role, whether it be a director, a president, whatever the title is. The fact of the matter is with a community-based team, it is a board-run, a board-driven organization. They are ultimately the decision makers. They put a president in place in Victor Kui who they believed would do the job. Where that starts to fall apart and you lose the confidence of that board, again, we don't know exactly where that falls, if it's on-field, if it's off-field. From a fan's perspective, the engagement I saw from Victor Kui and the positive attitude and the positive vibes he put out there were exactly what is needed in this league and in that city, especially considering they've gone through a name change. We've come through a pandemic. There's been a lot of things to knock them down. Victor Kui, at least publicly, never wavered in the positivity that he exuded. That has got to be his hallmark. He really believed in Edmonton. He really believed in this team. It's just a shame that this didn't work out. And I feel for Victor Quia because I don't think that this can be dropped on his shoulders what happened. He came in after all of this had changed. The coaching decisions, the president previously, and the name change all were before him. He inherited it and did his best with what he had. Philosophical differences sometimes are the hardest ones to get past, if that's the case. This situation reminds me a bit of what was going on in Winnipeg before their great rebuild and the bringing on of the Canadian mafia. We had Joe Mack gutted and emptied the cupboards of Canadian talent. Lyle Bauer had been in a in a position. He took off to Calgary for greener pastures. On comes Kyle Walters. On comes Wade Miller. On comes Mike O'Shea. It took them a couple of years, but that core committed to turning things around and that is the type of situation I think that the Elks need at this point. They may need to just blow it up completely. They're looking for a new president. They should probably be looking for a new head coach and GM this offseason. A lot of people felt that way. And the questions from that press conference indicated 
that feeling. Many people couldn't understand why it had to be Victor Kui going out the door when he doesn't coach the team and it's not his 0-9 team that goes out to play this week. The belief from Tom Richards, and he stated it categorically, is in Chris Jones. He trusts that Chris Jones has the right idea, has this team on track. Faith that he showed in him was a ringing almost endorsement of Chris Jones. And he claimed that it's a very young team. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. Hindsight, maybe a couple of veterans should have been left around. But the shakeup was almost complete in terms of who was there for the last games of Jamie Elizondo to who is on the field now. I believe there are only two players left, Jake Ceresna and Taylor Cornelius. I don't think anybody in their right mind anticipated it being a quick turnaround. We know that these situations are a process and it can be a multi-year process. I believe what people wanted to see was growth and improvement year over year. We're now halfway into the second full season of Chris Jones at the helm. Realistically, it looks like the Elks have regressed from where they were a year ago. There's more uncertainty in their quarterbacking situation. The offense as a whole does not seem to be getting the job done. Their special teams have not returned a kick for a touchdown in years. I don't know where they go from here. I don't see a lot of pieces right now that are game changers and moving things in the right direction. And Tom Richards, to his credit, I'll, I'll give him a lot of credit. He did two things very appropriately. He wouldn't discuss the terms of what happened because that's an internal affair. The other thing that Tom Richards said, we're too much of a win-driven populace. What about going out supporting the team and win, lose, or draw having a good time? Those sort of values seem to be lost. We're in this universe where winning is everything and losing well you may as, as well have not shown up. And that, to me, I, I agree with him on this level. Go watch football. If your team wins, bonus. I'm with you on that to a point, Don. And that point is when it does not look like the team cares about improving. And I lived through that in Winnipeg as a Bombers fan for years. We saw the late 90s, early 2000s, where the team just tailed off. There was a couple of flashes in there that were good, but there was a lot of bad in that and it seemed like the organization as a whole were pushing fans to put up and shut up it was buy your season tickets you don't run this team and we watched poor decision after poor decision so i get the frustration of elks fans as somebody who's gone through it now i did keep going i went to games thick and thin but that frustration level sets in and you see fans struggle to continue to support the cfl is affordable entertainment. It doesn't break the bank, but if your expectations are you're going to see a disaster product on the field, it does make you evaluate when, where you're spending your dollars. I'll agree with you to a point, but I'll also rebuff you. You can't have a vote every time you want to make a decision as a franchise. So you can't go to the season ticket base or the people in the stands and have a straw poll as to what you should do for next week. Fire the coach, fire the assistants. They are the ones in charge. They are the ones commissioned to do so. They are the ones that have to make the, the resolutions. That they stumble and bumble is their problem, not the ticket bases. Those things happen. We know that you need good people with good decision-making skills 
in charge to make sure that a franchise does well. Look at Ottawa. They went from Grey Cup champion. They went downhill. They're starting to climb back up because good people now are in place. And this is the issue with the Elks. If you believe that Chris Jones is a good person for this position at this time, you're fine with it. But the question for others is, given that he's won three games in his tenure this time, overall in his two seasons, what do you take from that? We can point back to Saskatchewan where he gutted the franchise. His first year they were horrible. The second year they weren't so. This is what the expectation was, I think, for a lot of people in Edmonton. It hasn't happened. What's different? That is a great question. And what's different right now seems to be player personnel and the cultural fit. It seems, and we'll get into this, I think, as we we look into the games from last week as well. But what I see from the Elks is a loss of focus as a team. I I feel there's a, a lack of leadership on field and on the sidelines right now that does not instill confidence in those young players and it doesn't give them the feeling like they have a chance to win. You see something start to go wrong and it snowballs and spirals out of control. I don't know an easy solution. You can't just go out and sign every veteran free agent out there and and toss them in and hope it's going to change things. But you mentioned earlier, there is a need for some of that veteran presence and that continuity. And if you've got two players left that started two and a half years ago, the entire makeup of your team has changed, but not necessarily for the better. If you want to become better, you have to at some point stay the course. You have to let these people mature. As you indicate, you can't keep turning them over every time there's a mistake. You learn through mistakes. CJ Sims, I'm sure, has learned that anytime a ball is near the end zone on a kickoff, he is getting it out of there because of the consequence that he learned. Granted, it cost him a football game, but this is the thing. In this losing streak, the Elks several times have come close to winning. An interception that went for a score twice beat them in this streak. Of course, the single point in Regina beat them in this streak. They are close. Second down. You brought out that the Elks have gone to an 0-9 start, but let's look back to that last game where they went out 22 to nothing against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. There are three things that I think come from that football game. Number one is that Edmonton has not had a lead like that any time during this losing streak. Number two, there was a play in the game that left Zach Kolaris out of the game after it. And number three, is there a quarterback in the making in Winnipeg? So let's unpack number one. 22 to nothing, the Bombers come all the way back. No, 22 to nothing was in the first half. It's not a fourth quarter flub. It's in the first half. So Winnipeg has time to figure out what's going on and try to write the the course that they're going forward with. For Edmonton, I, I kind of look at this as a positive and you may think, well, what are you, nuts? But just think of it this way. They hadn't had a lead like that. You got to learn to win with a lead like that. Other teams have blown leads like that. Winnipeg for one against Ottawa this year. Those things are sometimes the hardest thing to keep, especially when you get out early. Teams that get out to leads 
usually signify to me that that's a team on the verge. It was really a dream start for the Edmonton Elks. This was the kind of thing that that they have wanted to see happen for many weeks and many games now. The opening play resulted in a 65-yard rushing touchdown. I think the Bombers got caught a little bit on that, anticipating Trey Ford was going to be using his legs to make things happen. They were drawn towards him where he hands the ball off and it goes all the way down the field for a touchdown. So a great play calling to start for the Elks. The next drive, they do string some plays together to score a touchdown. Winnipeg struggled to get the ball moving. And then on the third score for the Elks, Zach Claris gets knocked out of the game. It's an interception return for a touchdown, putting them up 22 to nothing. A, a great start. But you have to hang on to that lead. And one thing the Bombers have shown us over the last few seasons is their ability to stay calm when facing adversity. Throwing away the one game against the BC Lions this year, which was a complete dismantling, the Bombers never seem to panic when they are trailing. They have confidence in themselves and in their abilities, and they showed it this week including having their backup quarterback in, that they just continued to chip away, continued to believe, and then ended up winning by two scores. So let's get back to that interception, the 23-yard score by Luches Purifoy. Zach Kolaris is under pressure. He rolls out of it, moves forward, but is stumbling. And as he falls to the ground, he pulls what I would call a Cornelius, and he flips the ball forward. It, that's where Purifoy happens to be standing, and he goes to score. But on the play... Coney Ely hits Kolaris while he's on the ground. That is challenged by Mike O'Shea. Booth reviews, and this is Al Bradbury, who has, I would say, a reputation of letting things be. He says, leave it stand. Agree or disagree? Disagree. Not necessarily a strongly disagree, but you look at... I don't believe Coney Ely had ill intent. I don't believe it was a malicious hit with intent to injure, anything like that. But it was late when you, you look at the situation and you ask yourself, did the defensive player have a chance to alter his path or the severity of the hit? It certainly looks like Coney Ely had that. We talked about it last week with Adam Big Hill's hit on Dane Evans and the ability to soften the blow there was an opportunity here to soften the blow Ely to me wasn't intending to injure but he was also not going to avoid contact and he left his hip and his thigh raking across the head of Calaris while he lay on the ground that may have been a function of his size ultimately I kind of felt that Ely didn't even have to dive toward him because the guy was already on the ground where was he going to go and that to me, is where the booth got it wrong. And I had to agree with the commentary from Mike O'Shea at halftime. I thought we were supposed to rule out of the game these types of hits on defenseless players. And this is something you and I talked about last week. Now we've got another quarterback that's out. And the numbers keep swelling as to how many new starters we're having to have in the Canadian Football League. The penalty, if assessed on Ely, doesn't change anything other than the scoring play because Zach Claris is still hurt. 
But this is the point that we were trying to get at, I hope that people understood, is that you've got to stop this to begin with. He shouldn't even have the mindset that with Claris laying there, he can dive on him. I agree. And if you look at the BC Calgary game, Keon Hatcher got hit similarly by Aaron Crawford of the Calgary Stampeders. He's not a quarterback. He wasn't throwing the ball, but he was, I thought it was Micah on the ground and reaching for first down yardage when Crawford comes in and hits. It looked very, very similar if you put those two plays side by side. Crawford was flagged for unnecessary roughness on the play. Is that Crawford or Micah Alway? If nothing else, that should have been a similar situation. The point of this is to get people to slow down a little bit when a person's on the ground or defenseless. At what point do we look at this and say, that guy's got to keep his career and feed his family as well? This is this win culture that I'm talking about earlier. You do it at all costs. Well, maybe not. Maybe you could pull back. And I know there's excitement and adrenaline and enthusiasm for what's going on. I understand that people are people and mistakes will happen. Timing could be off. Angle could be off. If you legislate against it, like the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League is legislated against fighting, you're going to see the instances drop because if there's consequence regardless of how you do it, people are going to get that stuck in their heads that I can't do it. Essentially what we all want as fans, we want to see the stars protected. We don't want to see physicality taken completely out of a game. The league has done a pretty good job of protecting defenseless receivers when they when a, a defensive back has a chance to lay somebody out, they're looking at taking some of those hard-hitting plays out. You can still be physical, but the blindside shots to the ribs and those sorts of things that are going to cause injury are not a part of the game. Roughing the passer, sometimes they're too soft. There's a almost incidental contact to the quarterback's head by the arm of a of a defensive player running by and it's given a roughing the passer flag. If you're going to call those types of plays, but not this one, I don't think it's in the best interest of protecting the players. It does give you a mixed signal and it's comes down to this definition of quarterback in the pocket versus runner. And I hate those disparate opinions about how people can be treated to me, if you're wearing the quarterback jersey and you're behind center, I don't care where you go on the field, you're still the quarterback. We're trying to keep quarterbacks in play. Right now, 19 different quarterbacks have started for the CFL in 2023. In 2017, 19 started the entire season. There's a chance that two more will be getting their first start this weekend. That brings it up to 21. It's great to have backups get their chance but then when the backups are knocked out it it is tough to watch it's the cfl is a quarterback driven league it's a it's known as a passing league you want to see these stars and these established players get their opportunities and it's across the board different a million different reasons why these quarterbacks aren't playing we've seen freak non-contact injuries we've seen contact injuries we've seen late hits we've seen the the old throw the ball hit your hand on the helmet of an opponent lots of different things come into play to knock these guys out of the game but again as we just talked about 
protecting the passer, protecting these star players has to be a priority of the league. And we're, we're seeing an unfortunate run of quarterback injuries. And, and you look at really across the board right now, we don't know for sure the status of Zach Kolaris, whether he starts this week coming up or not. Chad Kelly did start last week, but was questionable. He had an injury in the previous game. So the only one right now, and I'm going to knock on wood here and not jinx him, is Jake Mayer for the Calgary Stampeders has started every game and has remained healthy. Every other team right now has had to put a second string quarterback at the least in for significant playing time so far. Drew Brown did come in for Zach Kolaris in that game, and Drew Brown had a career night. 17-24 for 307 yards and four touchdowns passing. Immediately, Twitter or X or whatever you know it as, went crazy because they've got to trade Zach Kolaris, get that capital to be used on extending free agents, and maybe shoring up the defense, the offense, or wherever. People were going off. We've got a new quarterback. Sign him up and move on from Kolaris. And I was stunned to read this. I don't understand that at all. I mean, you look at the record the Bombers have had since Zach Kolaris took over as the number one quarterback. I don't know the exact number, but it's something like 30-some wins to five losses in games in which he started not counting playoffs. And they've had playoff success as well. They've had one playoff loss since he's taken over. Drew Brown really impressed me in this one. I hadn't been sold on him as a potential starting quarterback prior to this. We haven't seen a lot of him, but he has had a, a start here and there. He's had some meaningful time. This was the best he has looked. He was calm. He took control of the offense. He threw the deep ball when he had to. It was a, an all-around great game for Drew Brown. He's only signed through this season. The Bombers do have Zach Claris on a three-year contract right now, so it will be a player to watch this offseason to see if there's interest from other teams in Drew Brown as a opportunity for him to fight for a starting job. My question is, is he another Nick Arbuckle? Bo Levi Mitchell goes down, Nick Arbuckle has to come in, plays very well, wins the first game in a comeback fashion against the BC Lions, goes 4-3 and three overall. People are thinking, well, we can go away from Mitchell and Arbuckle's our man. Well, look at Arbuckle's career since then. I'm not saying that Drew Brown is Arbuckle, but that exists as a possibility that his career arc could be similar. We just don't know until... I've often said a game can make you money. A season can make you money, but it doesn't make you a career. You've got to be there for the long haul. And similar to Nick Arbuckle in Calgary, Drew Brown is coming into a very successful and established team. This offense has weapons left, right, and behind him in Brady Oliveira as the running back. There's no need to panic when he comes into the game. It's more impressive in a way when you get somebody like Dustin Crum that comes in to a team that doesn't have all of those weapons and he leads them to a victory. It says a lot more about that individual player. Now, Drew Brown could prove himself to be a very capable quarterback. The, the future is bright for him right now. As I said, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. There's some teams out there right now that are going to be looking for that next guy. And there's no reason that he does not get a chance to compete for that from what we've seen so far. Have you ever wondered what all 24 is? 
24 hours a day. That's one interpretation. <laughs> the other is all 24 refers to the eye in the sky. In other words, the coach's camera, the coach's film, the game film camera that is usually nearer the top of the stadium. So typically maybe in the press box or above it. And it's used by CFL statistics to review plays. Now in this instance, it actually helps identify what happened on a field on a penalty and really help the booth figure out how to apply the penalty. This is the game between Toronto and Ottawa. Toronto's offensive lineman Isaiah Cage pancakes Ottawa defensive lineman Lorenzo Malden the fourth. Meanwhile, there's a big completion downfield to Curly Gittens from Chad Kelly. The question is, after the flag is thrown and it's for rough play against Cage, where do you apply the penalty? If it happens after Gittens is down on the ground, you mark it 15 yards from where he was stopped. If it happened just as he caught the ball, you mark it 15 yards back from where he caught the ball. If it happened while the ball was in flight, you mark it back from the previous line of scrimmage. And we saw the confusion on the field because they didn't have a clear interpretation because the foul happened behind almost everyone except the official that was standing there watching it. And he wasn't looking to see if the ball was caught. So this is where that eye in the sky that shows the almost the entire field but shows all 24 players on the play, they keep them all in frame. You can figure out this happened here and that happened there. Eventually, Andre Pru gets the right information and says, no, the Argonauts have to go back from their previous line of scrimmage. Ironically, on the very next play, they throw an interception to Cario Brooks and he takes it back for a touchdown against them. Makes that what turned out to be a fantastic first half continue. These are the situations where it is great to have that command center, to have that eye in the sky and get these calls right. There was three possible outcomes, as you mentioned, in how to interpret this play. So the ability to look at the field as a whole and determine exactly when the infraction occurred in conjunction with where the ball was, what what play was happening, is vitally important to get that right. There is a, a huge variance in the yards there was a going back from the original line of scrimmage was about a 40 yard difference from where the the end of the play would have been so key field position and very very important to get that right what's happened to the calgary offense jake Mayer throws one deep ball against the bc lions all night is this pat delmonico being too conservative with Mayer? is Mayer checking down too readily we saw him throw 22 of 24, one of the highest percentage of completions in a game, but for 149 in a win against Toronto. Why aren't the Stampeders throwing it down the field? What's going on? It is very conservative play calling. And especially when you've got a receiving core that includes Trey Odom's Dukes, Mark and Michelle, Reggie Bagleton, they have weapons and the ability to push that ball down the field. I don't quite understand the hesitancy when you've got players of that caliber out there. Reggie Bagleton is one of the great players on a 50-50 ball. He's going to get them probably more often than that 50%. This conservative play calling seems to hurt them. We've seen Jake Mayer in the past have 300-yard game after 300-yard game after 300-yard game. He's got the ability to do it. I don't know what has changed, 
But Calgary needs to figure that out. They're sliding down the standings right now and are really in tight with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders on that battle for the third playoff spot. Mayor completes 17 for 131. Now, granted, BC Lions defense is one of the strongest, if not the strongest in the league, and they're not going to give up much anyway. But when you're only completing 17 balls for 131 yards, and on it, that's not even eight yards of completion. That's not doing it. You you see the teams that win. Let's look at Vernon Adams Jr. 23 completions for 322. They're more than 10 yards of completion. Chad Kelly against Ottawa, I think he was close to 20 yards of completion in that game. Those are the teams that are winning because they're pushing the ball down the field. I know that's one benchmark that we like to look at in a quarterback is that yards per completion being over 10 yards. You know who else had 17 completions last week? Drew Brown for Winnipeg. 17 completions for 307 yards and four touchdowns. That's pushing the ball down the field. That's taking full value in your completions. Chad Kelly, 21 completions, 417 yards. That's all but 20 yards a pop. That made a great night for Deveris Daniels. Three touchdowns and nearly 200 yards receiving. (laughs) He was happy to be out there. That BC Lions defense sure seems to be back to where we expected them to be and, and showing the the push and the the skill that they had shown earlier on this season in shutting down Calgary. Now, whether that was Jake Mayer being off or whether the BC Lions defense was really on their game, perhaps a little bit of both, but that's the BC Lions defense that we've seen really start the season off with some record numbers. The Lions twice this year have given up more than 40 points. Other than that, they've been almost unbelievable in how few points they give up. And again, they shut out a team from scoring a touchdown. They are something to behold. This is an amazing defense. Third down. Week 11 coming our way. And we look at the opening game of the weekend in Hamilton with the Edmonton Elks in Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats. Tiger Cats coming off a bye. Last time out, they played the Ottawa Red Blacks and defeated them. Now the Ticats have to play the Elks, who they lost to last year in Hamilton, but beat in Edmonton. Ticats are five and a half point favorites going into this game. What is the impact of Scott Milanovic now that he's the offensive coordinator in Hamilton? Is that enough to change attitudes in Hamilton, given he's been there in that position for, what, just over a week? Is Taylor Powell giving that kind of confidence to that team? I don't believe so. I made a vow that I would not pick Edmonton to win at home until they do win at home. Doesn't say anything about them on the road. I, I don't think that the Elks are going to go 0-18 this season. They did show some flashes and a, a great start at home last week against Winnipeg. Trey Ford is going to get his second consecutive start with this offense. And I like their chances. I think he's got more upside right now than Powell. And I'm going to pick the Elks in the upset in Hamilton. Trey Ford was there last time they beat the Ticats. Here's a little tidbit to think about as we go for the next three to four weeks through this season. Edmonton goes to Hamilton on Thursday. Their next game is 10 days later against Ottawa. Then they've got a back-to-backer against Calgary in the typical 
Labor Day, then Labor Day rematch set, and then they play Saskatchewan. Trey Ford is going to be their quarterback, and he finds a way to win. The Elks could win four of these five, and suddenly are in the conversation for the race for third place in the West. Compare that to the Rough Riders schedule over that same time period. They're going to host the Lions. They're going to host the Bombers. They're going to be in Winnipeg. Then they play the Elks. Stampeders host Winnipeg, go to Toronto, back-to-back with Edmonton, play Montreal. You can see where Edmonton, if they can win in Hamilton, can put some wins together and look out. They could be in the conversation because you kind of think that Saskatchewan is going backwards given the injury situation at quarterback. That's one of the great things with the CFL is how quickly a season can turn around. And we saw Saskatchewan kind of go the other way last year. They got off to a great start. And then the schedule caught up to them. And it was a matter of where can they possibly eke out another win or two. And and they couldn't. It it was a, a downward spiral in the second half of the season for the Riders and caused them to miss the playoffs. I don't believe I'm as confident that the Elks are going to win f- four of these next five. I certainly expect them to get rid of that goose egg in the win column two or three wins is going to show some positive direction. Now, if they go off and get to that four win mark, absolutely, then you need to start looking at the playoff race and those bottom three teams, depending on what happens with Calgary and with the Riders, can get a lot more interesting. Speaking of the Stampeders hosting the Blue Bombers, Winnipeg goes into Calgary as six and a half point favorites. Drew Brown is likely the starter for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Does that change anything for the Blue Bombers in terms of confidence in that offense? We know what he did in Edmonton, but the Stampeders' defense is a little bit different. It is. You've got Cam Judge in that middle linebacker position can be a difference maker in the game. And if you're not paying attention to what he's doing, he's either going to sack the quarterback or he's going to get an interception. He's a, a very athletic linebacker, can make things happen. Zach Kolaris right now is listed as questionable. He hasn't practiced the first two days of this week. They do have a closed practice on Wednesday, which will really be the indicator of whether it's likely that Brown starts or whether it's likely that Kolaris gets the start. If Kolaris is back in, I would expect the Bombers to win this one, probably cover that spread. Drew Brown at the helm, I'm going to take the the Stampeders at home. It's going to be a, a close game. Now, Drew Brown could string a, a second consecutive big game together get that win and then that would do nothing but instill more confidence in the Bombers and their ability to overcome any adversity that comes their way. Behind that offensive line in Winnipeg any quarterback would look stellar. Now give him Oliveira and give him that offense of weaponry in the receiving core and even I could probably put up decent numbers. (laughs) We go to the game that to me is the most intriguing of the bunch. Montreal is two and a half point favorites going into Ottawa. Ottawa coming off that loss to Toronto, where in the second half, Toronto just dominated them. Here we go with Dustin Crum again. It was the first time that it was really handed to him on a football field. Where is his hat at and where are the Ottawa Red Blacks in terms of how they approach this game? Because the Alouettes defense is dynamite. Last week, the Toronto-Ottawa game was a 
exciting matchup. Dustin Crum did not look like he was backing down from that Toronto offense by any means. Yes, they got beat by more than one score for the first time of with Crum as their starting quarterback, but he again kept them in it. This one, Ottawa at home, they have got a couple of wins at home now under their belts and have turned the tide after a lengthy home losing streak. I like the Red Blacks at home in this one. I, I believe that uh, that things are trending the right direction. Montreal, again, quarterback situation there. We don't know how healthy Cody Fajardo is. The injuries to his non-throwing shoulder. Do we see him getting into the back into the lineup in this one? But I, I like what I've seen from the Red Blacks. Despite the the only three wins so far this season, they've been very competitive, and and I think they've got a chance to pull this one out at home. Walter Fletcher went off against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. That helped Caleb Evans in his first start of the season. Having that running game really can settle the quarterback down because you've got something upon which you can rely. If they can get that kind of effort from Fletcher again, or if William Stanback is available to do it, this could be a very tough night for the Red Blacks. One of the things that Toronto proved was that you can fire over the top at will against this team. You've got to know that Montreal saw that and that Ottawa's thinking, goodness, we've got to figure this out. Now, are Cody Fajardo and Caleb Evans the types of weapons that can go over the top against this Red Blacks team? That's the other question. Caleb Evans had probably his best start as a CFL quarterback for Montreal last week. Are these the guys that are going to push that deep ball? Caleb Evans, Cody Fajardo was not afraid to do so. If they want to beat the Alouettes, that they're going to have to match them. This could be a track meet. Even though these defenses are great, I do think that there's going to be a lot of scoring in this football game. As I've said before, Ottawa is must-watch TV. Wherever they go, be sure to watch because they are fun and this could be the best game of the weekend. We finish in Regina on Sunday with the Lions in town. Vernon Adams Jr. back at the helm, taking on the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. The Lions, nine and a half point favorites going into this game. Everybody wanted to see the backup behind Mason Fine. Well, Fine now is injured. They've got Jake Dolagala. Jake Dolagala gets his first start this year with the Rough Riders. Two fumbles and an interception so far in his participation in 2023 <laughs> I really don't know how to how to argue with this spread if BC is on Saskatchewan could be destroyed they could be this one indicates a, a Lions win to me as well the Lions have had success at Mosaic over the last couple of seasons with some some big wins and and I don't think the quarterbacking situation right now for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders is conducive to pulling out the victory against a team of BC's caliber. Now, a team coming in with a a three and five record or a three and six record, you might have a chance to keep it competitive, but going against a seven and two team in BC that we've seen get back on track and that defense after the, the big loss to the Bombers had something to prove holding Calgary without a touchdown last week the Lions are likely to shut down the Riders in this one. 
The only thing that I worry about is at the end of that game against the Stampeders, Vernon Adams Jr. was hobbled just a little bit. If he is knocked out of the game against Saskatchewan and you go back to Dominique Davis, I'm kind of leaning the other way then. I think Saskatchewan, if Dolagala can stay away from the turnover game, the Rough Riders have a legitimate chance. It's unfortunate that it takes the starting quarterback to be out of the game to change the odds that way. It's potentially we could see Dom Davis against Antonio Pipkin in the quarterbacks of note in this one. After Pipkin was picked up by the, the Riders in a trade with the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats earlier this week. Saskatchewan's defense was their strength for so many weeks. And then Montreal just tore them apart. They're going to be licking their wounds. But wow, how do you go against BC in that defense? I I can't see it. it like, the beat Lions could beat them 10-0 For listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by. Canadian Football League player and game statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.